here with my buddy John. It's been forever. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Um, John Tavis, uh, born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, now living out here on the West Coast in Palos Verdes Estates, California. Um, generally a guy that works in sort of startups and entrepreneurship and that kind of stuff. Yes, you are. Well, you've been in this startup for what, 10 years? Yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah, it's been um, a decade, which is crazy. So you own 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 uh, the Books or Books. It's just Books. Uh, the formal or, name is the Books Company. The Books URL, Company. We, we have thebooks.com. We've got books.com. We've got thebooksco.com. There's a lot of a lot we of dot coms that we own. Um, but anything with the word B-O-U-Q-S in it is pretty much us. Do you have any of the ones that are, you know, so people misspell? Because I, I, I have to imagine, unfortunately, most people have no idea how to spell books. Like if yeah. you said, go to books.com, they would be like, what, books? You, do I, is it B-O-O-K? How do you spell books? <laughs> I think right. You might That's have. right. So funny, <laughs> random backstory. When we started the company back in 2012, um, the, the URL, B-O-U-Q-S.com, was listed for $40,000. Really? And, and the total we had raised to start the business was thirteen grand. so I couldn't buy books.com. But I, but I bought thebooks.com for $8.99 on GoDaddy. So oh, wow. that's why a lot of people call us the books today is not because we wanted to call it the books. It was just that's the URL we could afford. Um, 40 grand. Who owned it? Yeah. Who, who was holding some, it for 40? Some random person over in the EU um, wasn't going to use it, didn't use it. It was just a parked, you know, sort of ownership thing. So we had to wait until we raised our Series A, which was a couple million bucks, you know, a couple of years later. And, and we bought books.com. But just to your point, we also bought a boogs.com because some people put a G in there instead of a Q. We put right. B O. We bought B O O Q S dot com for the same reason, right? Because okay. it was it was sort of the good and the bad of the name, which was we wanted something that said floral, right? Yeah, but wasn't um, wasn't bloom because there's a billion businesses with the word bloom in it, mm-hmm. and wasn't flowers because there's a billion businesses with the word flowers in it. So we wanted something we could own and we could defend a little bit better than just sort of the regular stuff. But it was this trade off of wait a second, are people going to know what it is? And right. so in the early days, I just tested it. I would just say it to people and they would go, wait, what? explain it to me, right? Which is both, again, good and bad. It's not something you know right away, but once you get somebody in a conversation, they're much more likely to remember it, right? And so mm-hmm. we decided that the risk was worth the reward of that deeper engagement with the name. Um, and it's paid off pretty well. It's, it's, it seemed to work. It seems to work. Yeah, you guys are doing great. Um, what, why flowers? How did, how did, how did it, I mean... Maybe you're the flower guy and you're just like, I love flowers, but you're an entrepreneur. So I don't know if the product really matters as much to you as the, the, the process and everybody behind it. And I mean, the product itself, but it doesn't matter if it's refrigerators or flowers or picture frames. I mean, it's or 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 are you the flower uh, aficionado, I guess? Yeah. So it's it, I'm not. My co-founder is the flower dude. He, okay. he was born and raised in Ecuador and his uh, uncle owned a farm and he spent a lot of time on that farm. And even as teenagers, when we met at Notre Dame, where, uh, where we went to undergrad, um, he was all about flowers, you know, hundred percent all about flowers. Uh, my I had a career in strategy, you know, for 10 years before starting books, I was at, I worked at Bain & Company, did a little bit of advertising and then worked at the Walt Disney Company for about seven years in, in corporate strategy. So I was just sort of a strategy guy. And the way this all started was, uh, my buddy and I just started talking about his business. He was running, I, I think he was like GM of uh, sales for a large rose grower in Ecuador. He had moved back to his home country oh. and he had fulfilled his 
you know, teenagehood dream of working in floral. Um, and he started explaining the industry to me. And, and you're exactly right. Like, I love flowers. I think that flowers play a massively important role in people's lives. Um, I gave flowers to girls I was dating in seventh grade. Like, I go, I, I have a long history with floral and actually have uh, up on up my, I don't know if you can see it. But in that shelf back there, there's a, a single rose from my grandmother's funeral. Oh, is that what's uh, with me? Oh, that's so, nice. Like, flowers do matter in my life, but I wasn't a flower guy, right? For me, what was really intriguing about this was was the the pain that I had in personally using competitors in this space and and how frustrating it was. Uh, I, I was, it was like Mother's Day of 2011 or something, and I was buying flowers for my mom. And I remember going through such a difficult process just trying to check out and all the bait and switch pricing and then what showed up wasn't what I ordered. And I was just so frustrated. I was like, this is weird. This is a category that when you're shopping it, you should feel good. Like I'm doing something nice for my mom, right? I'm being a good son here. And yet I'm walking away from that experience being frustrated and angry. That doesn't make any sense. As a brand guy trained at Disney, I was like, this is weird. You shouldn't yeah. feel frustrated. So I saw the problems from the consumer side. And then my co-founder taught me about the problems on the on the supply chain side. Rampant mm -hmm. waste, old flowers, no sustainability tracking, all these things where I was like, oh man, if we can solve half of the issues on both sides for the consumers and for the farmer supply chain, we can build a real business here. So you're right. It was more about the interesting challenge. And then my own personal experience in trying to shop that space saying, hey, there's got to be a better way here. And, you know, there, it's a big industry. It's $100 billion globally. It's $18 billion in the U.S. There's a real business opportunity here as well. So that's pretty interesting. You start, I get the story, and you you and your, your you said roommate from college, right? Not is roommates, but good, good friend. He was actually Just the good guitarist friends. in my college band. Oh, you had a college band. Look at you. Oh, yeah. What, what was the name of the band? We have to know. Uh, it was called Sexual Chocolate. Oh, Perfect. Of course, from coming course. to America. Yes, <laughs> that's pretty. And what did you do? What do you play? Or do you? I sing? was lead or singer. You... Lead singer. Yeah. yeah. Are there any recordings of this that we can listen? Oh, to? oh, there, there are, and you will not get your hand on any of them. <laughs> Damn it! We were, we were more entertainment than than good music. We, I had oh, my roommates sure. who who were not rhythmic in any way, shape, or form. They were my backup dancers and backup singers. It was, it was high <laughs> comedy. That's fun. <laughs> You know, but being in a band is really fun uh, until like until two decades go by and you listen back to what you did as a teenager. And a friend <laughs> of mine just said, but we were in a band, he sent me these old, you know, recordings. Go, oh, we were, uh, we were they awful. were fine. I was terrible. I was so <laughs> bad. So bad. But uh, yeah, so that's how we met. We were we, we, we started this band together and we goofed around for a couple of years doing that and we became good friends. OK, so he's from Ecuador. He's the flower guy. He, you go to work, he goes to work, you guys meet back up, uh, or you guys, are, I'm sure, are talking through this whole time and start looking at this business. He's got the, the expertise in the flowers, and you've got the expertise in the business. And you say, okay, we're going to do this. You guys come together. It's just the two of you, probably, I'm assuming, at this time. And you get thirteen grand. Is that what you said, 13000 you started with? Yeah, so... We, we sort of did this in a bit of a, an odd way, right? So I was, you know, I wasn't the sort of, not the quintessential because the actual average entrepreneur, I think average successful entrepreneurs in their 40s, but I had a kid who was nine months old. I had a mortgage in Venice Beach, California, and my Oof. wife worked in public education, right? Mm -hmm. So 
I wasn't quitting to make no money, right? That wasn't, that wasn't in the cards for me at that stage of life. Um, and I highly recommend that anyone who's in college or graduate school or whatever, who thinking about starting a company, like start it now. It's never going to yes. be, it's never going to be easier later. <laughs> That's my message now. to everybody. I'm like, give up your twenties, start your business and get it right. done. Cause get I didn't start mine until I was 30 ish. And with kids, it's so difficult, so much more difficult. So it's more difficult either way. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but so I didn't have that, that, that luxury. So I was working a full-time gig at another startup. Um, and I went to my bosses and just said, Hey, I had this idea. They, they, my bosses at the time, by the way, just so happened to have worked at one of the largest flower companies out there prior oh. to, to, to running the company I was at. So I was like, Hey, I want to do this thing. You know, is it cool if I do it nights and weekends? And they were highly supportive. They're like, sure, just, you know, do a great job for us. And your time's your time. If you want to spend it, watch TV or you want to spend it building a company, go ahead. So I, I sort of just hacked together a team, all who were willing to work on it for free for some period wow. of time. Right. And yeah. it was like, I got a graphic designer, uh, my buddy, Dave, uh, who ended up being with us for multiple years, five years, um, was my creative director. My co-founder was the supply chain and farm guy. Uh, my mom was going to be the first customer service rep uh, awesome. out of her home back in Roll Ridge, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, and my sister was going to help us with HR whenever we had employees, which wasn't at the beginning. And then I got my intern from my, uh, my current job to be my nights and weekends consultant on social media. Damn. And I, that was the team. Uh, oh, and, and sorry. And I got a, um, a, uh, a, an intern out of UCLA Anderson, where I went to grad school um, for over his summer break to build us the technology for equity. And what? so really, yeah, wow. no, Garrett, this is 2012, right? I couldn't do this today. No one would do this today. Um, but he, he was, you know, I just went around and recruited people and I recruited them with the idea that like, Hey, when this works, I'll give you a job and you'll have equity really early in a company that's going to be huge. Um, and I say this all the time to, to my class that I teach at UCLA now and, and to any entrepreneur, I'm like, look, your number one job is to get people to believe, just mm -hmm. get them to believe that this is possible. It may or may not be possible, but your job is to bring them all on board, whether they're employees customers, investors, partners, whatever it might be, your number one job is to create belief. And I'm, I'm a good cheerleader. I'm good at selling things. I'm good at talking about things. And I got this great team and they were great to work on this for about six months for free. And, and that was all of us. We would work, you know, we'd, we'd meet up Wednesday nights at this great diner in Santa Monica. I'd buy everybody, you know, dinner and we'd work for four hours at this diner together. And then we'd all have deliverables and we'd come back a week later. And over the course of six months, we built the beginnings of this company um, with everyone working their full time jobs, you know, in parallel, except for Leonard, who was our original technologist and, and still a longtime good friend. Um, he he just did this as his full time gig. Um, and I've never seen anybody build more code as an individual than Leonard Lin. This guy is a legend. Um, uh, but he built he our entire tech stack over a summer. For, well, not, I ended up not, not being free. free. I right. paid him some cash later once we got some funding, um, but I couldn't afford him at the beginning. You know, right. I'm sort of like, hey, you'll have a chance to come in and be VP of engineering, you know, as soon as you graduate. Um, and his whole second year, because we launched at the beginning of his second year of grad school, he was go both going to school and effectively running technology for us at the same time. Wow. That's pretty, that's really amazing. Now, you said it couldn't be done today. Why do you feel like that couldn't be done today? It's not that it couldn't be done today. It's just much harder, right? It, 2012 was still relatively early in sort of what I'd call the, the sort of mass market startup movement, right? It used to be that startups were only for people in Silicon Valley. And mm -hmm. it was this 
myth, mythical thing that like no one really did, right? And in 2007, eight, that started to change where all of a sudden regular people were starting companies. They weren't just starting them in Silicon Valley. They were starting them in LA and New York and all the way across the country, right? And so today, you know, a decade later, the... Uh, level of understanding of, level of access to the tools, the capital, et cetera, is just so much greater um, that the opportunities to build things are just are much, e it's just much easier than it's ever been before. And my bet is, is if, and I'm not talking about Leonard in particular, but like if you take the exact same person, you push them forward 10 years to today and I go and do my exact same pitch, they go, cool, but what do I need you for? I'm just going to go do that on my own. Right. Right. And so convincing someone to take a, a portion of equity today for free work is just, I think, much harder to say. Now, I haven't tried to do it. Maybe it's totally possible. I, you know, I mean, yeah, my, I can see my, both my sides. Expectation. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. And, and it's the love and hate relationship with technology because you, you hit a sweet spot from a timing standpoint, uh, which is just, I mean, it's not luck, but it's just the way the world works. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you miss it. Mm -hmm. And today, um, with whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a musician, an artist, there is so much available to us as individuals to do whatever we want. So it's incredible that, it, like this podcast, I mean, there's a little bit of investment and I'm learning as I'm doing it and I just have fun with it. But I, 20 years ago, there's no, I couldn't do this, but all no you way. need is a computer. Uh, and if you get a Mac, you've got GarageBand on there, you need a mic. And that's kind of all you need to get started. And same thing with as a musician or as an e-commerce. I mean, you could go on and get WordPress or any of the other carts. You could start that business for virtually nothing. That's right. As a proof of concept, but so can everybody else. So now I mean, the the competition. I say this all the time. When we started this thing in 2012, Shopify didn't exist. Yeah. Right now, like a high quality e-commerce website is available to everyone tomorrow for kind of nothing. Whereas we had to build something from scratch and all those tools with unique code from scratch just to get it off the ground. And it took, you know, months to years just to get sort of a decent tech stack built. Now you sign up, you pay whatever the hosting fee is, $9.99 a month, and you've yep. got a website. You've got you've got the ability to do commerce, right? And so yep. the tools and the sort of access to capital and resources is just so different now than it was a decade ago. So, you know, could could you build it the same way we built it? Probably it's possible that someone could. Um, but I think it'd be a very different dynamic, right? I don't think you're giving away, you know, uh, just equity. You're probably raising money, but there's a lot more money today than there was back then. Yeah. Um, you know, money. so a lot of changing dynamics over time, but, uh, but we did it in a very scrappy way, right? Part-time team, part-time awesome. work for the first six months. And then, uh, and then I got laid off. The, oh. the startup I was in was, you know, not, not going where we needed it to go. Um, and I got laid off in October of 2012. And I said to my wife, I was like, well, we're, we're like a month away from launching this thing. I'm just going to give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Uh, if it doesn't work, I'll go get a job. Um, but hopefully it works. And I did some consulting on the side to kind of keep the lights on and keep mm -hmm. the income coming in, you know, 30 hours a week of consulting, 50 hours a week of books. You know, we sort of like made it work. Um, but like I, I was literally, I, I remember Adri walking around Venice beach, with my dog on a leash, my nine-month-old in the in the stroller, and I was on pitches for books, like trying to raise money with Where headphones in, and like you know sirens are blaring in the background because there's always a fire in Venice somewhere. <laughs> um, 
and uh, like I, you know, just making making things happen as best I could because you know we had to juggle all those things at the same time. So you start, so you get thir- thirteen grand. Is that mostly yours, or did you borrow it from somebody else? Or yeah, so my co-founder and I each put in four, okay. and then my mom, my sister, and a couple of my buddies each put in like a thousand to two thousand bucks each. Um, and so that that's what we used to start the business. What you you know? What did you use that capital for? Because if you got somebody doing your your your, I mean, you got to buy URLs, but that's fairly cheap. Yeah, um, it was I, primarily you know hosting. We had to pay for hosting. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to put a little bit of money into uh, you know social media and those types of things to sort of see what kind of marketing things would work. Um, here and there, like some one off vendors for you know things that our team couldn't couldn't handle. Uh, but we only spent about five of it uh, before we raised our seed round about a year later. Um, sorry, about right, nine months later. Um, and so I, I always still say like, there's still eight in the bank sitting there waiting for my co-founder and I to, to, uh, to spend. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it was, it was really just sort of seed capital to get the basic stuff done, right? We had to form an LLC. I was like, whatever, mm-hmm. $800 on, right. on whichever website we used. Um, you had to register with you know, the state of Delaware to become a corporation, just the basic stuff. Um, but over that first year, you know, we did about two million dollars revenue. Um, wow! Only spending, only spending that five five grand, and so um, the business was working pretty well. That's fantastic. I didn't. I mean, that's pretty. That's two million in a year off thirteen thousand dollars. Scrapping it. To, I mean, it's a great story. It's. I mean, it's just really fun, and that's the way it should be done because you're you're so tied to it. And you get your thirteen thousand. That's a lot of money. I mean, thirteen grand is a lot of money to people. You go, at the you time we had in, nothing in the bank, so that was a lot, right? <laughs> you know, and you've got a family, and the stress. It, you know, it's a little bit like what I went through. Going, uh oh. Now yours worked in a year. Mine did not work in a year. It took a lot longer. And there was the uh-oh, who who are we paying this month because we have no money and right. we got to keep the lights on, but. Uh, there's something to be said about that because you're you you are very tied and you have to be dedicated or you just have to stop and say this I'm not cut out for this and go get a nine to five job That's right. which sounds awful to me but you got to do what you got to do right uh, so now you guys started this business with the idea from what you said what, what or what I'm gathering from what you said that you saw I'm going to assume your biggest competitor, at least at the time, where you know you're looking at flowers.com. I'm sure you're not allowed to say competitors. I don't know what your regulations are. I can. I'm I can allowed say to say all do the it. competitors. Oh, okay. Now, the, the big guys in the space are 100 Flowers, FTD, one, yep. Teleflora, Proflowers.com. You know the Proflowers. That was the one. Yeah, sort of. I was groups, thinking of the groups that have been around for you know. I think FTD is literally like 120 years old or something like that. Really? Are, yeah. These are really you know sort of legacy companies, and then you know. That was sort of who we were focused on at the time. Since then, there have been a whole bunch of, you know, I don't want to say they're all copycat, but businesses that look very similar to ours that have come along. Yeah. Um, but the, the big thing that we did differently, and we do differently today, is the, is the way that our supply chain works, which is when you shop our website, you're not shopping our flowers. You're shopping flowers at 50 farms around the world that grow 2 billion stems collectively, and you're getting them directly from that farm to you almost every time. And so we we don't source from local florists who source from wholesalers, who source from wholesalers, who source from importers, who source from farms, who, you know, there's this daisy chain that happens, which is really the sort of underlying source of the inefficiency in, in the industry. Uh, we go straight to the source. We work directly with those farmers. They're sustainably growing farmers. 
and we can sort of track that product all the way back to who's packing it and what hour. Um, really? And that, that ability to have the data and the information about the product enables us, we believe, to do a better job than everybody else in quality and freshness and sustainability and longevity in the base uh, and price point. And so we really went direct from the consumer and, and we, we really, we built the technology to create this connection between the farmer and the consumer and the hopes that that is better for the farmer and better for the consumer. And, and we, we, at least we believe that that's, that's what we're doing. Of course, it's, it's a better, it's better. So would you consider yourself more of a technology company really than a flower company? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the yeah. day, we're a, we're a, a supply chain optimization software company that just happened to deploy that technology in the space that sells a perishable good that is flowers. Um, would you use, but, would you look at that as a market from, from a technology standpoint to, uh, to distribute the technology to other uh, you know, yeah, it's something industries? we've talked about for, for a really long time. At this point, the Books Company is so much about floral, there's not really any sort of reality in which we would then copy and paste what we've done in other places. Like, it is a flower company through and through. That is what yeah. the company is, is built and designed to do. But do I believe that similar software applications exist in other uh, sort of verticals? Absolutely. Right. When you look at sort of the way a lot of supply chains exist, including floral, uh, they grow up over time sort of with people just providing the next incremental solution. Right. It's mm -hmm. like, hey, today we buy this stuff here and we do it this way. But then, hey, it'd be a little bit cheaper if we move over here. And we do it this way. Uh, what they do is they just copy and paste what they did before into a whole new scenario. Right. Now they're sourcing from Kenya. OK, well, let's get it on a boat and bring it to this harbor and then we'll put it into this warehouse because that's where we used to get it from. Right. It's like that's how supply chains grow up. Um, and so I do believe that there's a massive opportunity globally to reinvent supply chains using software. Yeah, um, it I tends agree. to be just very disruptive and very expensive to do it. And it's really hard, especially when you talk about perishable goods. It's not like a thing that anybody can just whip up and, and, and build. Right. It, you have to be really knowledgeable about a given industry, which is why having my co-founder as part of this business was so important. Because he knew and understood the way flowers worked in a way that I, it would take me decades to understand. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but I do believe that there's a big opportunity there for sure. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, the supply chain, uh, it, it's only come to light in the last couple of years. I mean, since the pandemic, it, I think if anybody was paying attention, you would have known that the supply chain is an issue or potentially with any uh, any catastrophe, we're pretty screwed. And for somebody to come along or a company that understands this, I think there's a huge opportunity for somebody. I'd love to be part of that opportunity uh, to really change this, the, the whole outlook. And it would change, not change the world per se, but change the way the world operates if somebody could get, get their arms wrapped around it. Yeah, the, the uh, hard part is that for any given sector, televisions, flowers, whatever you name it, the the process and the players are so unique that you kind of have to build bespoke solutions, right? Yeah. Um, and so there isn't like a solution. Again, you can't just take Book software and just apply it to a bunch of different places because it's so unique. We do mm -hmm. everything in bunches and, and we, we, we ship certain sizes and they have to derive on a specific date, right? Every other e-commerce business, you just pick two-day shipping or five-day shipping or whatever it is and it shows up when it shows up. It might show up on Tuesday, it might show up Wednesday. For us, if the birthday is on Wednesday, it has to show up on Wednesday. Tuesday is no good. Thursday is definitely no good, right? And so all these nuance, and then it's a perishable good. It needs to go through customs. It needs to go through inspection. If there's mm. certain bugs in it, it gets burned, right? Like all these things are the things you have to worry about in our specific industry. So you need to build solutions for it. 
Whereas, you know, again, TVs or, or whatever, microwaves or whatever it might be, is going to be totally different. Yeah. Um, but point being is that generally speaking, my philosophy is the more boring an industry is, and I'm putting air quotes and I know, I know the listeners can't see video, but the more boring something is, the less technology has been deployed in the space. Because people tend to take technology in the places that they view as sexy, mm-hmm. right? Oh, you know, TV, great. You get Netflix, you get Hulu, you get all this stuff. But like, whatever, um, moving pipe fittings around the world is the most boring thing I could think of in this moment. Like there's not a lot of people building software solutions for that, right? That's, that, there's not a lot of startups that are focused on how to move pipe fittings efficiently around the world, um, which is where I think that's the best place to build companies because you're just going to get less and less competition Com- doing it, the, what you're doing with the supply chain. Very smart. And so was that part of the reason for the flowers or was that just the opportunity? Because it seems like flowers is a, is a major business, obviously, and it was back then. I remember using pro flowers. Um, which was, and I don't know if it's changed. I haven't done that in at least a decade, but it was a terrible experience. Like you were talking about, you know, they show the picture, you say, I want this. And then you go through and they're like, Oh, well, do you want a vase? You're like, well, you showed it with a vase. Oh, that's an extra 20 bucks. And by the time you, you get roses you, or you know, whatever, a bouquet of flowers, it's like $150. And then you finally get them at 1999, right? Right. It was 1999. You got 150 by the time you're done. They come and they're dead in two days. Yeah. And you're like, great. I just spent $150 on this shitty ass vase. Right. That's like, yeah. The, the, all of that is why we started the business. It's like all those good. sort of pieces of the experience, the upsells along the way, the lots of steps, what, what happened on the other end. Um, and all the other stuff, sort of the complexity of the supply chain, the inefficiency of it, we learned that as we went. Right. It was really about, hey, we're seeing problems from the farmers. We're seeing problems with the consumers. Let's build a better mousetrap here. And then over time, you know, you you learn, just learn about the industry in which you're working and all these other levels and layers sort of become obvious to you. You're sort of like, wow, this is a much bigger opportunity than we thought. You know, we thought, hey, if we could get to 5 million in revenue, we could sell this thing for $10 million and we'll be rich, right? right. And then, you know, fast forward a decade later, we raised $85 million. You know, we've done hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and we believe the opportunity is much bigger than that. Right. That's awesome. Um, now, uh, if you could have told me I could have sold the business in year two for five million dollars in the bank, I would have done that in a heartbeat. Um, so don't get me wrong. But <laughs> each each layer that we peeled back of the onion, we just saw more opportunity in the space, um, and we were able to attract capital to that business to to be able to go try to go take advantage of that. And that's you know that's the job. Okay. So I want to ask you about the next chapter, but before that, the, the, I have questions about. Well, I don't know anything about flowers, right? But you have farms all over the world that you work with, it sounds like. Do they contract directly with you and they're only allowed to sell? Do, do you guys control the farming that way? And yeah. so I have a farm in wherever, I don't know where, uh, and I say, okay, I want, I grow these great, but let me, let me stop myself and ask you, do are flowers grown like a monocrop type of agricultural or do, so I guess my, what I'm asking is, am I a rose flower grower? grower right. And that's all yeah. I grow. Or am I yeah, growing so, a plethora of different varieties? Yeah, it's going to depend. I mean, there are there are sort of small micro farms that grow a single crop, you know, single mm-hmm. varietal once a year. You know, peonies is a great example of that. You've got peony farms in Chile and in Alaska. Um, it's a really unique crop where like 
if you learn to grow it, it's really profitable for you, but it's hard to do at scale and you generally don't do other stuff. Um, and then, you know, there's rose farms that will grow like 50 different varieties of roses. And then there's everything in between. There's farms that grow 30 different crops, right? And there's massive farms. I mean, mega farms that are like hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue. And then there's small little mom and pops that are doing, you know, maybe a million. And so it okay. really runs the gambit. Um, but we don't run the farms. We don't own the farms. We don't exclusively contract for their volume, uh, primarily because we don't want to be responsible for that volume. You know, we, we don't want the inventory. The inventory dies, right? It, after some period of time, the inventory is worth nothing. And so part of our entire thesis on the business was take as little as inventory as possible and let the software make the market for you. Mm -hmm. um, so we work with amazing farms around the world. Again, they grow about 2 billion stems. Um, and we work very closely with them. We share data with them. We, we try to help them run their businesses better. My co-founder coming from being a farmer, right? A lot of our orientation is towards making the farmer's lives better with this model, right? Um, but, but we don't own them and we don't sort of restrict the way they operate. We just want to give them a tool that hopefully increases their monetization of their crops, increases their visibility to the end customer, especially around the, the sustainability angle which has always been really important to us and, and, and really important to my co-founder. You know, the way he, that he ran the farm that he was running and, and his partners in that farm, they were fully sustainably grown. They recycled 100% of their rainwater. Um, they never used red label chemicals. They used natural predators to eat the bad bugs, right? They would release mm -hmm. these cool little predator bugs that would go around and eat all the, all the bad aphids. Um, and, and they treated their labor really well, right? And so our hope was to find like-minded farms like that farm to say, hey, we don't just want to work with people who produce the product. We want to work with people who produce the product in the right way. That's and that's huge. And the message is huge today. And probably you were you're right on the cusp ten years ago of that movement, right? The the self sustaining. Yeah, um, organics had become pretty common on the shelf in the grocery store at that point, um, but it was sort of just creeping from grocery to all the other categories, and yeah. so we were relatively early, you know, there was, there were a couple other really small businesses in, in the flower space that sort of talked to sustainability and organic and that kind of stuff. But um, I think we, we helped usher in sort of that, that era for, for floral. Yeah. Uh, and it's huge today. I mean, it, we, now with when, when we're talking about topsoil and not having any, uh, you know, all these vegetables, corn, especially, or that there's no nutrients left in the, in, in the vegetables because there's no topsoil. And, it's scary. I mean, if you go down that rabbit hole, it's terrifying uh, to me. And I'm not a conspiracy type of theorist person, but I'm like, hey, guys, there's a problem here. We got to change. But who's going to change? You know, I, mean, I don't know anything about we were picking on pro flowers before. I don't know anything about their model. But if they have, if you had to guess what their annual revenue is for like pro flowers, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. All I know is that those, those four I listed earlier are big. Right. Big. So they're, yeah. they're big businesses. But the, the thing that I think is 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 fascinating about sort of where you're going with this is the. It's now in the consumer consciousness, but consumer is limited in their power to enact change. Right. You can lobby. You can you can write your Congress people. You can try to get people to pass laws, whatever it might be. But we see this with sort of climate change. You know, there's always resistance due to multiple factors, not misunderstanding. Uh, financial motivations, you know, big business, whatever it might be, sort of make these changes happen. And the way that we thought about it in this space was, let's just inform the customer about where our stuff comes from and why we source it the way we source it, and then let them make the choice, right? 
And if we can do it cheaper as well, even better. If you can do it cheaper. On on our subscription basis, we're cheaper than everybody that delivers flowers on on the internet. Really? We're at $44 flat for a dozen roses, and that's delivered anywhere in the U.S. There's no shipping fees, nothing else on top of that. And no one else touches that price point on a delivered basis because we've cut out all these layers in between and we're shipping it directly from a farm. Um, but with that, you get something that's grown on a sustainable farm, right? And, and that's where we feel like the sweet spot is if you, could, if you can show that, and this my co-founder always says this, if you can show that responsibility is actually better for business, just good business, mm-hmm. you get better product as a result, you get better customer outcomes, you get better farm outcomes, then it just becomes the way you operate, right? It's not... It's no longer really a choice. It's just the world shifts in that direction. That's happened in so many sort of subsectors over over the years. And you know, flowers is getting there. It's not there yet, but it's getting there. Yeah, obviously it's changing. I, I think it's a very good thing, and it becomes awareness. And you're right, people. You, you can lobby, you can do it, but at the end of the day, as a consumer, you're voting with your dollars. And if you, it it goes back to the old something I used to talk about with. Uh, green energy, right? Renewable energy, and which is obviously an issue when it comes to a, a consumer. I get energy, I get heat, right? Or, or water. Like, and if somebody came to me and said, here's renewable energy, and here's your, your current gas, uh, nothing's going to change, and it's either the same price or cheaper, I don't think anybody in there, besides some crazy person, everybody's going with a sustainable bill. But the problem is that we go, well, what if I don't have lights one day? Um, are you still on? Yeah, I'm here. It just You're dropped there? off for a second. Okay, it dropped off. Yeah, I don't know. Technology, we're talking about technology. It's so great until it doesn't work. I was a, had a friend of mine, do you know Joe Freya? Do you know Joe? Yeah. 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 He came on uh, a couple weeks ago. And he, I don't know if he just didn't have good Wi-Fi, but he dropped out like five times. I'm like, ton of, what? Uh, what was that? What was I talking about? Sustainability. Oh, yeah. yeah. But then the question is, well, where is this really coming from? And if you can prove all those points, listen, it's coming from a local farm. We're we're making the farms better because we want a better product. They want a better product. We can get it to you, and we can keep it cheaper. It's a no-brainer. There's yeah. literally nobody that knows about it that would say, no, 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 wait, I got the books. I got, and, sorry, pro flowers. I don't mean to be picking on you. We're just talking. You got pro flowers and you got books. Where do they get the, oh, these guys get them from sustainable uh, farms all around the world. And these, uh, we don't know where they're coming from. And right. this one's cheaper. Okay. Let's go with the books hundred percent of the time. Right. Well, and with, you know, you look at the, on a subscription basis, our largest size, which is three dozen roses, that's a lot of flowers, right? You're talking about a ton of flowers showing up for them. Out the door, that's about, about a $70 price point. It might be 69, it might be 72, but it's basically, it's, it's in the low 70. Our, most of our competitors, not talking about anyone in particular, will charge you more than that for a single dozen roses. Wow. And so we're gonna give you triple the product for the same or less price. That's when you sign up for a subscription. So that means you're signing up for at least every other month, right? You're going to get something delivered, but you can skip it whenever you want anyway. So you're mm-hmm. not actually committed. You're not required, right? And so it's really like, uh, it, it's kind of a no-brainer. The hard part is, is educating customers about that opportunity, right? And that's, that sort of goes back to why we raised $85 million is, you know, marketing is expensive and it only gets more expensive over time. And mm-hmm. so 
you know, when we when we started the business, we got all of our customers for free. It was just me running around telling this story to anybody that would listen. And then all of a sudden our customers cost us X dollars and then two X dollars and then three X dollars. And eventually you're spending a large portion of your revenue on marketing. Um, and Can in you a say space how much? No. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, Fair enough. But look, in, in any industry, any sort of consumer industry, you know, you're going to see cost to acquire customers of anywhere from call it fifteen to a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to vary a lot, right? If you're in, sure. uh, let's say, mattresses, it's going to be closer to a hundred dollars because it's a, it's whatever, a thousand dollar purchase, right? If you're talking about sort of widgets, it might be four dollars. But point being is, you're going to spend a lot of money if you want to acquire a lot of customers to, to get those customers in the door in the first place. And um, and so you can have the right product, you can have the right message, you can make it a no brainer, like we're talking about here, uh, again, in quotes, um, but you still got to get people to understand it. And especially when you don't have, you know, a conversation like this, that an hour long to educate somebody about, here's how it works, this is why it has to be better. Um, getting people to try it and then having them see that result and then be loyal is, is ultimately your goal. But that's hard, right? Because, yes. you know, again, Shopify has made it so that literally anybody tomorrow can start a flower company. Just go to your local flower market, put on, you know, adriesflowers.com, sit at the flower market, you get an order, fulfill it, ship it out. You got a flower mm-hmm. business, right? Yeah. Um, and so cutting through all that noise in any industry today is so hard. It's one of those things that I think is so fascinating about companies that get really big. And when I say really big, I mean like billions of dollars of sales, et cetera, in like a few years, is that there's so much competition, not just within a given space, but just for everybody's eyeballs all the time on every device. I mean, think about mm-hmm. how many ads you see a day if you use Facebook or, or Twitter or any of these social media platforms, if you watch you know, any of the streaming platforms, you're just getting bombarded constantly with messaging of try this thing, try this thing, try my brand, try my brand. And so the ability to cut through and scale something is only getting harder literally every single day, right? Because at the time when we started Books, maybe there were like 10 sizable, and when I say sizable, like you know, millions of dollars of revenue floral brands. Now there's probably hundreds. Um, and, and not because of anything we did or any of those competitors did, just because the access to the tools and the capital became so much more pervasive, so much more quickly. Um, and so it just makes it harder for folks to build big businesses and to keep them growing because you just have so much more competition for the same dollars. Yeah, it's become a, it's becoming an issue I, for entrepreneurs that don't have a tremendous amount of backing, you're starting out. And I, where do you find that you you're spending most of your marketing dollars. Is it social media still? Are you guys doing more traditional type of media, TV, radio, everything? It it varies a lot by, by business type and by, and by stage. Right. So, you know, I have this little spiel I do for early stage founders around how to spend your money. And the beginning is you shouldn't spend any money, right? What, What you should be developing is a story and a positioning that gets people excited without having to spend money. That's the $2 million in our first year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and so that story is so key to just getting to a certain level of scale that can allow you to raise more capital if you want to, or if not, just reap the profit of what you've built. Um, but I always say like, you need a story that has an HSM, a holy shit moment in it. Where like the first time you ever used Uber, right? I'm, at least this is how it was for me. I, I saw the little car going on the map, right? And then I, then I saw it come where I was and I looked up and there was a car and I was like, holy shit. Holy right? That's shit. a holy shit moment. That's like yep. magical moment where you go, oh, this is the greatest thing that I've ever used. Right. Um, and you need, you need that. And you either need to have it to be endemic to the product like an Uber or you need to create it with the story that you, you have. Like we were starting Books, 
I was walking around to everybody saying like, hey, I got this flower company and we're going to do this and it's going to work like this and it's going to be sustainable and it's going to be fresh. And everyone's kind of like, oh, that's nice. She was like, pat me on the head. Like, that's a yeah, nice business. Indeed. Like, thanks. Yeah. They, I wasn't getting the response I needed. It wasn't a holy shit moment. And then uh, in one meeting once with a creative executive, we, we sort of in casual passing mentioned that my co-founder's farm, which was the first farm on the platform, was um, on a volcano called Cayambe in Ecuador. And he was like, wait, 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 you have a volcano? He's like, that's the coolest thing ever. And I was like, oh, man, the volcano is so obvious. I mean, I've been there. He lives on it. We've just been ignoring this whole time. So from that point forward, we would say, hey, we drop ship flowers from an active volcano in South America for $40 flat. And boom, everything's up into the right. Right. Yes. Everyone wanted to talk to us. They wanted to put us on their shows. I got on Shark Tank. You know, they wanted to put us in their press. They wanted to write articles about us all because of the thing that was sitting there the whole time. But we didn't have our holy shit moment. It was right in front of us the whole time. Um, but really, like we could have said nothing about that volcano and, and all the same things would have been in the business and we would have never taken off. Yeah. Right. That story became the core to who we were. Now, today, we don't talk about the volcano at all. Right. We have all these other tools at our disposal. When you're starting off and you don't have a lot of capital, you don't have a lot of technology, you don't have a lot of team, you need creativity so you can stand out from everybody else. And that's what mm -hmm. that story gave us. And so people would like want to talk to us, want to talk about us, want to order from us. They would see this, the, you know, the customs stamp from Ecuador and be like, it's real. It's not, it's not just a marketing ploy. It's actually happening, right? Um, and it was real and it is real today. But that, that story and that angle is really what gave us the right to get to the next size. You know, and a lot of people go like, well, I'm not creative, so I can't come up with a story. It's you don't need to be creative. You just need to try a billion options. Yeah. And if you talk to people about your business or your idea or your whatever, and they don't lean in and go, "No way, I can't wait to hear more," and they just go like, "That's nice." Well, then you don't have the right story. Yeah. And you need a different one, right? Whatever yeah. it might be, you could be like, "Hey, you know, when I was a kid, I had this story happen, and I broke my leg, and so this thing." And people go like, "No way, that actually happened to you?" Yes, it did. Right? You have a story that people grab into. If they go, oh, "Yeah, it's pretty nice," you don't have the right story. Right. And yeah. so it's just trial and error. And that's that's like half of building a business is just being willing to fail and being comfortable with the idea that trying stuff isn't failure. It's just experimentation and then adapting to the learnings. And if you can get comfortable with that, you can kind of build a business out of almost anything. Right. But the more you get that story right up front, the more you get people talking about it and sort of you know, genuinely, authentically sharing that story, the less capital you need the less convincing you have to do, the less belief you have to sell because people are believing in, and interacting and building the business for you. Yeah, I love that. That's, uh, that's the message I think that I like to spread to any new entrepreneur, you know, somebody that's in their 20s coming out of school, because it seems like today with technology, the other downfall is that is the overnight success. Everybody's an overnight success everybody's got a private jet, everybody's got a Ferrari. They didn't tell you that they rented a room that looks like a private jet or they, you know, they rented the Ferrari for an hour because that's all they could afford. Uh, and people believe that they have to have it all figured out before they go. And I think, and I'm not saying I'm right because I'm not a uh, Elon Musk or a, a, you know, Mark Cuban or whomever with that, you, you you know, that has billions of dollars and has been that kind of, I don't want to say successful, but made that kind of money. Uh, but failing is the most important part. And it's not failing. Like you said, it's just trying things. And if they don't work, great. That's just one step closer to finding out what does work. 
And it's okay for things not to work. And it's okay that you didn't start a business yesterday and and, and you didn't make $50 million in sales the next day. It's not going to likely happen. That's right. Uh, it's, I mean, a lot of people uh, think that that Airbnb was like some overnight success, right? Those those guys literally slept on people's couches, not because they were customers of their platform, because they had nowhere to live, because they couldn't pay rent. Mm-hmm. And that I'm talking like years of grinding, because no one believed in it. They were just like, no one's ever going to rent a, a room in a house. It's so weird. It's like no one's going to ever get in a stranger's car, right? Yeah. Um, the, these guys just grinded and grinded and grinded. And after I think it was like four or five years, they finally got their first investor, right? And and so everyone sort of starts the story there, but the story started years before that. Um, and this idea that you're going to get it right is just folly. Like you don't know the world's going to change, you're going to change, your customers are going to change, the you know technology is going to change. Where if you think you just have to, you know, this drove me crazy. I went through a really great business school at UCLA Anderson, and I, I teach there now. But I, I wrote that class precisely because I didn't have a class that taught me what it was actually like to start a company. I got all these business plan writing classes and all these things. It was like, oh, I can research my way to the right answer. And that, those are all good skills. It's good to do your planning and your research and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to start a business by starting a business. And mm-hmm. you might have it 25% right. It might be 75% right. It might be 2% right. But the only way you get started on the journey of learning about what the right business is going to be is by getting it wrong. So like when we started Books. My initial hypothesis was we're going to build a flower business for guys. It's just going to be like what we do. It's just like make it simple, make it very utilitarian. It's going to be pretty, but like really like let's solve this for guys. We went out and we started posting things on on Facebook. No guys clicked on them. Lots of women clicked on them, right? Now we're a service for women. Let's go. All right. Like at the end of the day, you just you do what you need to do. It doesn't mean you don't have principles, right? It doesn't mean that you don't believe in something. We believe in this mission wholeheartedly, but on the edge and on the margin, like how you execute on it is a constantly changing, evolving lesson on what your business needs to be. The dangerous part of that approach is that it can lead to just flailing. We're going to try that. We're going to try this. Like there's no clear direction. So you do need a mission and a true north that like keeps you on a path. Um, Because otherwise you could, you know, reboot your business 50 times and never get, never get to anything. But you're taking tendrils of what you learn and kind of stitching them together so that you do have a real clear path over time, but really the information and the learning is coming from trying instead of researching. That's trying is, well, my, my buddy, uh, Jake Herbert would say you, I use try too much, but I like the word try because I'm not, sometimes I go into things thinking that this isn't going to work out, but that's, and that's okay. But the attempt, maybe attempts a better, you know, some people's philosophy is, well, trying, you don't do anything. It gives you a way out, right? I'm going to try. And so just do it. And I said, okay, I don't know, semantics, right? But um, I try things all the time that don't work. And I have an idea that they're not going to work, but they're going to get me closer to something that I'm trying to accomplish. And that maybe I'll never get there. I don't know. But uh, we've got to, you just got to go out and do it. I tell people all the time, starting a business is tremendously easy. Right. I mean, you file some paperwork, like you said, what did it cost you? 800 bucks. Now you have a business. That's easy. The next steps are, are kind of some of them are in your control. Some of them are out of your control. And you just kind of roll with the punches and keep moving. I know you're on a you're on a I'm, 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 I'm upset that you're on a time crunch, but I get it. I want to respect <laughs> your time. So I think you only have. What do we have, like seven, eight minutes left? Six, seven minutes, yeah. Six, seven minutes. Okay, so I want to respect your time. Uh, 
and I would love to do this again because I have a million questions for you. Uh, happy if you'd to. ever, happy okay. Uh, and maybe one, um, I, I'm considering, here's a try. I'm considering doing video maybe next year. So maybe you can come on and show your pretty face and a big smile and look at it. <laughs> <Sure thing. laughs> and you got a nice full head of hair. I'm so <laughs> jealous. Damn it. Uh, it's, it's, what's it's next start, for the books? It's starting Look. to happen, but, uh, oh, is it? it. I'm, I'm holding on to it a bit. I'm giving up. I'm going to, I don't know if I go to shaved head. I, I mean, it's, it's not too bad, but no, you're, you're hanging in good. Trust yeah, me. I'm you're, hanging you're, in got, there for I now. I got friends for, who were, you know, 21 and, and completely bald. It, so. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Uh, so wait, two in, in six minutes, I don't know if we can get to it. Well, I was going to ask you about shark tank, but let's go up over shark tank. Um, yeah, let's do What's that next, next time. We'll do a, yeah. we can do a whole whole half hour. Because I'm sure that there's a lot of interesting tidbits there. But uh, totally. what's next for the company? Yeah, so you know we're 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 on on, on sort of the beginnings of a, of an evolution of the business where now we're actually uh, running our own retail stores as well. So we have uh, we've had five over the last couple of years. We currently um, have a one flagship store in, in Los Angeles. We've done some experimentation in the space, but the reason we went into that was our customers kept asking us for things that we couldn't really do. It was sort of like, hey, can you do a full service wedding for me where you show up and install the flowers? And we're like, we can't. We don't have the, the ability to support you in that. Um, we, people ask for same day delivery. Well, we can't deliver from a farm in Ecuador today. It's just too darn far away. Yeah. Right. Um, so just looking at what our customers were asking us for and what we were able to provide, we said, hey, let's let's spin up some retail options here and see what works. And our, and our Los Angeles store is doing amazingly well. Customers love it. Uh, literally our highest net promoter score that we have in the business. Um, but, you know, the challenge is like, hey, can you can you run a retail store and not have all the waste, not have all the old flowers and all the things that sort of plague the, the traditional industry? And what we got us really excited over the course of the past year and a half of experimentation is that we're actually, uh, we have the, the same or lower waste rates in our retail store as we do in our Farm Direct network. Really? Highly amazing, right? Yeah. Because uh, the technology and the way we've built it, we've been able to use it in the same way that we use it for farms as, as for, for, our, for our floral shop. Um, and so the plan is to expand that, you know, exactly how we're going to expand that is still TBD, um, but getting more into the sort of wedding events in corporate space, which you re require a store, and then getting more into the same day delivery space, which also requires store seems to be, you know, the next big thing for us. So it's still early in that journey. Like I said, we have one, one store actively, but um, we're really excited about what that could do for us. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. That's a whole different, that's like a whole different business model. It really yeah. is. It, yeah. And we're, we're leveraging a lot of what we've built, right, from a smart data and a supply chain management perspective to make that store really efficient. Um, so there's tendrils into it. But from a pure, you know, uh, operational perspective, instead of being, you know, everyone online, all remote, whatever, we're talking about physical labor, physical space, leases. You know, it's, it's a very different business model shift. But customer response has been so great that we feel like we've got a lot of legs there. So we're excited about that as the next phase of the business. Great. I look forward to, to hearing more about that. Uh, and again, so let's, before you got to go, day in the life, what is your, so what's a Monday morning or Monday look like for you? Um, you know, as chairman of the board, right, where I'm not running the company, it's highly variable. It really just depends on what's going on, right? So I could be crushed and super busy with books, or I could be like, you know, maybe have a 30 minute conversation with the CEO or a board member or something. Right. So it really is is highly variable. Uh, the way I spend my time, generally speaking, is is in sort of three three areas. Right. One is helping the CEO run the company as best as she can. Um, 
two is kind of outward and upward, meaning investors, partners, those kind of conversations. Um, and then three is helping you know my personal portfolio of startups that I've either invested in or I'm on the board of or whatever it might be. And so you know I've got a handful. I don't have like a massive portfolio, but I have a handful of of bets and and entrepreneurs that I work with to try to help them build their businesses. Um, and that's probably where over time I'll spend more and more of my time. You know, that's it, either as an investor or an advisor or a consultant or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, starting another one is not in the cards for the next decade while my kids are in sort of their core years. I missed a lot of, of their early years because of the business and I'm not willing to do that again right. in this phase. Yeah. Um, and so, but I, but I love technology. I love big ideas. I love, I love helping it and working with people. And so, um, and then I teach my class. I teach my class at UCLA. It's called the, uh, the journey to the entrepreneurial mindset. It's literally a, a class that's designed to help students understand what it's actually like to build a business and what skills um, and challenges, you know, the skills you need and what challenges you'll face. Um, and so that class is starting up here again in about six, seven weeks. And oh. um, excited to to do another cohort of founders that you know hope, hopefully help them build their businesses. Yeah, that's that sounds like fun. I love that. Uh, I, invite me over to. I need I need to get out of Pittsburgh. It's gray. It's thirty three <laughs> degrees right now. Uh, I need to come over to the West Coast for a little while. But uh, listen, man, I know you got to go. I, for sure. Yeah, I appreciate your time, and I would like to do this again when we have a little bit more time. Um, but if anybody wants to. Uh, get some flowers, obviously go to books.com or thebooks.com or B-O-G something. B-O-U-G-S.com. Yeah, right. You spell it however you want to spell it, but come to books.com and send some flowers. Get some um, flowers. And if you want to find me, I'm on LinkedIn, John Tabis, T-A-B-I-S. And I'm you know, always happy to connect with, uh, with old friends and, and, and yes. you, of course. It's uh, well, it's been great, great seeing you, and I do want to do this again because I've got so for many sure. more questions for you, and it's hopefully. Are you ever come back to Pittsburgh? Yeah, yeah, normally back, you know, maybe two times a year. Um, oh, depending okay. Depending on you know what this 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 year we're hosting Christmas here, first time ever. Uh, so oh, bringing the family uh, out here for uh, for the holidays this year, but most years we're back for Christmas and, and then during the summertime. Well, if you come back, let me know. We may, I don't know if you drink beer, but we could have a couple beers or drinks or whatever, and do beer. the show in the in here live. It's it's, it's more fun. I mean, technology is good, but that'd be, great. Um, that'd be great. All right. Sounds good. Don't, don't hang up quite yet because I got to, it's got to like catch up on the thing, but um, we'll stop it now. Thanks, everybody. John, appreciate your time. Have fun out there. Appreciate it, man.